Hey everybody, Warren Smith here, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's extra episode, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, I've got Tim Alberta on the program. Tim has a new book out called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. I've been an admirer of Tim Alberta's journalism for a while. Uh, He used to be the chief political correspondent for Politico, and now he is with The Atlantic. He's also a committed Christian and uh, is uh, unapologetic about talking about his Christian faith. He's the son of a pastor, and uh, the story of his dad actually plays a fairly prominent role in this new book. Uh, Tim Alberta covers a lot of the ground that we cover here at Ministry Watch. He, he writes about in the kingdom, the power, and the glory, a lot of the same ministries and pastors and preachers that we cover here. He takes a slightly different perspective in some cases than we do, but often not. And I thought that um, this book and a discussion of this book would be one that uh, would be helpful to you. I, I, I do want to apologize in advance for a couple of things. Uh, one is that it does get a little bit Trumpy, and uh, I don't like that. It's, uh, it's sort of hard to talk about evangelicals these days without talking about politics, and when you talk about politics, that means you talk about Trump. So uh, I, I don't think that we're going to veer permanently into the politics lane here at Ministry Watch, but I do think that that uh, it's appropriate for today's conversation. And I also want to acknowledge um, a little bit of mild profanity in this episode, and I'm just going to go ahead and get it on the table right now. Uh, Tim will tell a story about uh, uh, speaking, uh, delivering a eulogy at his father's funeral, and uh, one, uh, a number of people came up to him while uh, at the funeral and started um, really criticizing him for an earlier book that Tim had written. And one of those persons puts a note in his hand and that really chastises him in particular, at, literally at his father's funeral. And Tim Alberta's wife says, what the hell is wrong with these people? Uh, that anecdote, that story is an important part of Tim's story. And um, I you know, hope that um, some of you will be able to get over the use of that word. And um, yeah, so we'll just move on from there. So Tim Alberta is my guest today, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Well, Tim, welcome to the program. I've got to say that I'm, I've been a fan of your work for uh, a while now. Um, I, I read uh, American Carnage and was very taken by that book a, a, a few years ago. And uh, when this new book came out, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, it was it was even more up my alley, I guess you could say, because I've been covering evangelicalism for a long time, and I just thought that uh, this new book is masterful. And, and my first question really relates to the difference between those two books. Um, it's, not, it's not that you don't have a ton of great reportage in this new book, but it does seem to me that this book is a little bit more personal than your previous book. Do I have that right? I think that's fair to say. And, uh, and thank you for your kind words there. You know, yeah, this, this, this book, I think by necessity was more personal just because, you know, my, my reporting on Trumpism and on the 
implosion of the Republican Party over a period of 10 years or so, that was something that I had just observed neutrally. I was reporting on it as a journalist. I did not have any great personal investment in those issues uh, other than just being sort of a, a taxpayer, a citizen. I think making the transition to reporting on something such as the evangelical movement, uh, of which I'd been a part for most of my life, and you know, uh, a place where I'd found my identity, my family, uh, so much of my community kind of wrapped up in evangelicalism, it was it was going to be, again, I think by necessity a very different proposition uh, from the start. And I tried as best I could to not extract myself from it because that was going to be impossible, but to at least um, check my check my emotions at times and make sure that I was uh, as sober and objective as I could be in assessing the situation. But it was yeah. tough. Well, uh, let's put, let's uh, put a little bit of flesh on those bones that you've just introduced here, and and tell me a little about your dad and your upbringing, and um, and also a little about Chris Winans, who um, plays a role in both the beginning and the end of the book, and has plays a role in your story and your dad's story as well. Yeah, so my dad, uh, Richard Alberta, was an atheist. He was raised in a broken home. He was a brilliant guy who. Uh, found his way into the New York finance scene and was very successful, had a beautiful young wife and a healthy firstborn kid and a big house and a Cadillac to drive and thought he was on top of the world. But his life was uh, really empty on the inside. And, and he and he knew that and he felt it. And um, despite being an atheist, he went searching and one day found his way to a church in the Hudson Valley and gave his life to Christ and completely radically changed who he was. Um, and a short time later, uh, he felt the calling to enter the ministry. And I just can't overstate how insane that was to everybody around him, his friends, his family, his wife, you know, my mom was not yet a Christian. They, they just, they thought he'd lost his mind. And, uh, and he just felt certain that the Lord was, uh, was anointing him to, to go into the ministry. And so uh, my folks wound up, my mom did become a Christian, and uh, my folks wound up selling all their possessions and, and uh, embarking on a life in ministry. And the church they eventually moved to, it was called Cornerstone, Cornerstone Evangelical Presbyterian Church, part of the EPC denomination. And it's in the suburb of Brighton, Michigan, outside of Detroit. And that's where I grew up uh, since I was, you know, five years old. I, I spent uh, my entire life you know, literally, physically growing up inside the church. My mom was on the staff there. So I spent all my waking hours basically hanging around the church. And that was my home. That was my community. Um, and, you know, my dad and I had a really, really good relationship. We were very close. Uh, we loved each other a lot. But I think philosophically, there was a real divergence over time, particularly as it related to sort of the relationship between the church and Republican politics. Um, you know, even though my own faith never wavered, I just became really disillusioned the older I got uh, with institutional Christianity and with the intrusion of the culture wars and, and, and politics and uh, just a, a sense that something here wasn't right. And 
I think, you know, for my dad and for his generation, really, there was um, kind of an effortless fusing of the, of these things, of the, of the conservative theology with the conservative ideology, conservative politics. And so this kind of came to a head during the Trump years. And as it so happened during the Trump years is also when my dad appointed his successor uh, after more than 25 years leading this large church. My dad chose as his successor this brilliant young guy, Chris Winans, who uh, had a superb feel for the pulpit and who was a, just a, an incredible scholar of the scriptures and, you know, a great heart for the Lord. He was just straight out of central casting to be the new guy to take over this church. There was just one problem, which is that in my deeply conservative Republican church, Chris Winans was not a conservative Republican. Now, he wasn't some like, you know, lefty progressive. He just didn't really care about that stuff. He, his, his, his views on everything were informed by scripture. And that was such a dramatic change up from my dad's style in, in running the church that it really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And it seemed as though Chris Winans, the new pastor, was going to be okay because my dad was still there. He was still in his corner. He was still kind of hanging around in the shadows as the godfather of the church, helping to smooth the transition. And then very abruptly, about halfway through the Trump presidency, my dad died. And that was uh, obviously a, a great personal blow to me, but also a blow to his successor, Pastor Winans, and a blow to the church. And things really started to fall apart from there. Uh, well, first of all, uh, let me say, Tim, even though it's now been a while, I'm sorry for the loss of your father. I know that you probably still feel that uh, acutely. And the, your your dad, just to put a little uh, context here, uh, a few, maybe a few numbers, when at the peak of your dad's pastorate, maybe when Chris first took over, the church had how many folks? 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 more? Um, yeah, yeah, pushing past 2,000, yeah. And um, so Chris took over, your dad passed away, COVID hit, there were, you know, kind of a harmonic convergence of events there. At the low point of the church, um, what was attendance there? How, how, how dramatic was the decline? You know, um, I, I would hesitate to quantify it because I wouldn't want to get it wrong. But, but as Chris described it to me, uh, I, I write in the prologue of the book, or maybe it was in chapter one of the book, about this lunch he and I had a few weeks after January 6th and things had really bottomed out. And Chris said, you know, it's an exodus. And, and he had been describing this to me really over the previous year or so with more and more people, first by first a trickle and then, you know, a few dozen and then a few hundred. So I have to think that in total they lost, you know, at least at least a few hundred members. Yeah. So we're going to come back to that story um, towards the end here, I hope. Um, but uh, let, let me just say that the reason I wanted to ask those stories in the beginning is because I do think it dramatizes fairly um, plainly how this is a very personal story for you. This was your church. This was your dad. This was your upbringing. And um, the transition from your dad as pastor to, to uh, Chris Winans as pastor also, um, tell me if I'm maybe mischaracterizing this, set you out on a journey, shall we say, that, that was the, um, um, a journey through evangelicalism. Uh, in fact, at one point, your wife says to you, um, what the hell is wrong with these people? 
And uh, in some ways, I took that sentence or that question from your wife um, as almost the raison d'etre for the book, right? Where you are, you are wandering now through evangelicalism, trying to find the answer to this question that was posed in part by what happened in your own home church. Is that, is that a fair characterization? It is a fair characterization. And let me be really clear about what had, had led to that point. So you know, it, it wasn't just uh, Chris taking over the church and the struggles he was having, but very specifically, you know, my dad died, as it just so happened, right after the release of my book, American Carnage, uh, in which I was, you know, quite critical of, of Donald Trump, um, largely through the lens of what my dad had taught me, that, that politics is an exercise in character and, and ethics and integrity. And no, that's how I evaluate public officials. Uh, in, in my in my work as a journalist, I'm informed deeply by my foundational Christian beliefs. And so, as that book was making a lot of news and making a lot of headlines and making a lot of waves, uh, get, I was getting a lot of attacks from right wing media, Rush Limbaugh, among others, kind of coming after me. Well, right in the middle of all that, my dad dies. And so I come home to Michigan for the funeral at my home church. And at the visitation, I've got people coming up to me and confronting me and getting kind of in my face and wanting to argue about politics, wanting to argue about Trump, you know, wanting to bring up what Rush Limbaugh said on his show about me the other day. It was it was really jarring um, because, you know, I'm still in this zombie phase of like mourning my dad who had just died a couple of days earlier and trying to make sense of everything going on. And I was, I was, you know, I was, I was sad. I was angry. I was astounded. And the next day when I delivered the eulogy, I just couldn't help myself. And I just kind of let some of the congregation have it and said, you know, what, like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, is really Rush Limbaugh? Like at my dad's funeral, like that's what you want to argue about, you know? So I said my piece there and um, maybe I shouldn't have, I don't know. I, to this day, I don't know if that was the right thing to do. But a little while later, we buried my father and then we came back to my parents' house, my brothers and I, and we were just kind of sitting around relaxing for, the, you know, for, for a few minutes. And one of the church ladies who was at the house, who was helping to prepare a meal for us, she came over and handed me a note with my name on it. Somebody had left it at the church. And I opened up the note and it was from a former elder at the church, a longtime friend of my dad, somebody who'd known me since I was a child. And basically the note was, it just said what a disappointment I was and how I was undermining God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump, and how I should be ashamed. And, um, and that was when my wife, I, she, she read the, this letter and just she just my wife's a pretty cool customer, but she like she just lost her mind. She threw the, this letter in the air and she just screamed out, what the hell is wrong with these people? And you're right. I mean, in a lot of ways, that was like the organizing question for me, because Warren, what had been kind of an abstraction for so long, this 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 gut feeling, this uh, just knowing intuitively that something was wrong in the, in the evangelical church, something was a miss. 
that abstraction very quickly became concrete for me in those couple of days that here I am, the pastor, the, the, the son of this beloved pastor and someone who these people have known their entire lives. They don't know Donald Trump. They don't know Rush Limbaugh. They know me. They know where my heart is. They know what I believe. And yet at my dad's funeral, they, they're, they're, they're so preoccupied with their political identities and their cultural tribal identities, all this stuff that, 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 that supersedes our relationship as believers. It was just so hurtful and so jarring. And yeah, in a lot of ways, that was really what sort of the spark that lit the fuse here. Yeah. Well, Tim, I want to be careful not to make this uh, conversation or represent your book as being uh, about or mostly about Donald Trump, because it is absolutely not that. In fact, you say you say early in the book that you wanted to you you were careful because American Carnage did so well. There was a temptation in some ways to write a sequel to that book and that you want you intentionally actively resisted that impulse with this book. This this book is is not about Trump or Trumpism per se, but it is really about what has gone on in evangelicalism um, o- over the last, you know, I don't know, pick a number, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, um, in, in since, let's just say since the Moral Majority Christian Coalition era um, forward. So I don't want people listening to this to get the wrong impression about what your book is about. It is not about Trump. Given that, let's pivot a little bit and talk about um, what that question of trying to find out what is, you know, what's gone on, what's gone wrong with evangelicalism, um, what that question set in motion, uh, and it really set in motion a journey. In fact, I got to tell you honestly, Tim, when I was reading the book, I, in some ways I thought of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Um, I don't know whether that was in any way, shape, or form a model for you, but it was like, it was almost like you, you've got this foreigner, you've got this Frenchman coming to America, visiting these, you know, t- touching the elephant at different places and trying to describe the elephant. In, 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 in some ways, that metaphor really breaks down because you are not, of course, um, a Frenchman. You're an American. You're, you are not a non-evangelical. You were raised in the evangelical milieu. But aside from, aside from that, <laughs> I think that um, I, I thought of that a lot because the book from then on is organized of with you on reporting trips to various places and uh, around the country that are kind of key hotspots for uh, evangelicalism. So let's let's kind of pivot to the journey, if you will. Um, you you met with a lot of people. You met with you know I would say some of the usual suspects of the critics like Russell Moore and Mark DeMoss. But you also went straight into the lion's den. You interviewed people like Robert Jeffries as well. So let me start with a process question. Uh, how did you decide who to interview? How did you decide what was going to be relevant to your telling of this story? Who was going to be relevant to the telling of this story? The great challenge here, I think, was to capture the breadth of evangelicalism, which is to say that, you know, when I write this, I think on the second page of the book, that caricatures of evangelicalism and evangelical life are just not helpful because we're talking about tens of millions of people. We're talking about a huge range of, of, of diverse attitudes and behaviors and viewpoints and motivations. And so I really... I thought from the very beginning, look, if I'm going to do this, I need to cast the widest net possible and I need to explore the full spectrum here. And 
yeah, I mean that that means the you know starting from the one end with sort of the never Trump evangelicals who are complete holdouts now politically and who have just almost taken a separatist view of of what the church should be in relation to uh, the the political process, and then all the way to the other end with this sort of militant far right Christian nationalist types who have sort of you know, who are kind of merging two kingdoms into one, as it were. Um, so that was the goal from the beginning. And believe it or not, there's actually a lot of reporting that didn't even make its way into the book because, I, I you know, it couldn't be 2,000 pages. And I, I did try. I was really, really intentional about making sure that anyone who picks up this book who self-identifies as evangelical, that they would see themselves represented in these pages somewhere. Because I believe that ultimately, one of the great ironies in all of this is that we're not talking about people who in many ways have different beliefs in, in, in a lot of core ways, not just theologically, but sort of culturally, politically. A lot of these people have the exact same beliefs, but there is in a, an incredibly sharp divergence as far as the tactics and as far as the approach and 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 the the comportment, um, you know, as as Curtis Chang, one of the people I interview in the book, he talks about this this project that he and Russell Moore and David French have launched this curriculum project that aims to help believers try to work through questions of how to deal with politics and how to engage with people who disagree with them and whatnot. And Curtis makes this point that says, listen, like we can and should really disagree as Christians over the what and the who, you know, what policies do you support? Who do you vote for? Like that stuff is fair game. But the question of the how, how do we approach these things? How do we conduct ourselves as Christians in, in the public square? There really can't be any disagreement on that because it's right there in the book. I mean, it, it is not, Jesus is not ambiguous. The Gospels are not ambiguous. The New Testament model is not ambiguous as to how we are to conduct ourselves. And yet that question of the how is really, I think, the great fracturing point that I try to explore throughout the book. Yeah. Well, let's just stipulate for the record that we are not going to uh, completely unpack a nearly 500-page book in the 30 to 40 minutes that we have, Tim. But I did want to ask you some um, questions that um, maybe help our listeners get into the book a little bit. And also, just out of personal curiosity, uh, as you you did interview a lot of people, and I've already, we've already named, both of us uh, have named some of those folks, I did have some specific questions, though, about um, Eric Metaxas that I wanted to ask you about. One of the things that impressed me about the book was that, um, you know, this was not a research paper, that this that that there was a lot of real boots on the ground journalism here. When you, you know, you're when you write about Robert Jeffries, it was based on actual interviews with Robert Jeffries. When you, um, you know, write about Ralph Reed, for example, based on actual interviews with Ralph Reed. Um However, Eric Metaxas was a little bit different. Um, um, I, did you try to get an interview with Eric, and did he turn you down? Um, tell, tell me a little, because in my, in my and of course, I, I've got to confess a little um, point of self-disclosure here. I've known Eric for a long time. I would say at one time, you know, I would have considered us to be pretty good friends. Um, and the pivot of Eric Metaxas is one of, in my view, the more interesting, fascinating uh, pivots of the recent 
you know, era of the Trump era, shall we say. And I'm just wondering um, if you could say a little bit about, you know, your attempts to get access to him and your ultimate conclusions about why he made the pivot that he made. Well, boy, that, yeah, the, the pivot, you use the word fascinating. And that is, that is certainly one word to use, uh, fascinating. I, I did, I, I did try to reach Eric a couple of different times, a couple of different ways, and uh, ultimately didn't hear anything back. Uh, I, at one point, even showed up to a church where he was speaking, tried to get to him, uh, and, and just didn't have any luck. Um, I don't know that he would have talked to me. Eric's evolution, shall we say, is hard to it, it, it's it's hard to hold up next to some of the other characters in the book because I think for so many of these people, uh, and this is where obviously the evangelical experience in recent years runs pretty parallel to the Republican experience, which is to say that. You watch all of this unfolding and you ask yourself, well, how many of these people actually believe it? How many of them are really true believers? And how many of them are just sort of along for the ride? Because it's good for their careers. It's good for their bottom line. They have more influence. They have more fame. Uh, and I think, you know, in the evangelical world that I've reported on here, some of these people who have really you know, hitched their wagon to Trump and gone sort of full MAGA, nationalist, blood and soil, God and country. Like a lot of them know better. A lot of them are still rational actors and they've just made a calculated decision to do this. And I think that they're going to have to answer for that. It, it, my sense from, and, and I don't know Eric personally, but my sense is that there's something deeper that's gone on here, that there, there's actually been sort of a psychological transformation because there's almost no way for someone who's as smart as he is, as learned as he is, to say and do the things that he has said and done absent a real break. Um, and, and I'll just, I guess that's as, as, as plainly and as gently as I can say it, because I can say it more colorfully. But, but, you know, we're talking about someone here who endorsed martyrdom in the run-up to January 6th, said that, you know, that he was willing to die in this fight to keep Trump in office. Someone who has suggested that Joe Biden isn't actually president right now, that there's a body double in his place. Somebody who sucker punched a protester on a bike outside of the Republican convention in 2020. I mean, something's gone very, 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 very wrong with Eric Metaxas. And I know friends of his, I know people who have been very close to him who are just absolutely gobsmacked by it and who are incredibly pained by it and struggling to make sense of it. And I can only sort of rely on their perspective to try and formulate an answer to your question. But it's it's genuinely baffling and, and obviously quite discouraging. Well, and I'm one of those. I mean, like I said, I've known Eric a long time. And um, in fact, I was at CPAC, uh, the Conservative Political Action Conference, in I think it was 2011 or 2012, right when Bonhoeffer first came out. And Eric um, spoke to, um, a, you know, a large audience there. Donald Trump was also there. And he said, if Donald Trump is a conservative, then I'm not sure I am. And he said that in front of a, you know, a packed room and got a standing ovation at the end of that speech. I subsequently, uh, after, you know, after the 2016 election, when Eric was so full throated in his endorsement of Trump, I asked him about that. 
And um, and he admitted that, the, no, that is what he said, because um, uh, mysteriously the um, tape of Eric's presentation to CPAC that year disappeared. We, I couldn't find it anywhere. But, um, but, um, but he did say that. He admitted to me that he said it. And he just said he changed his mind. He said, I just, I just changed my mind. I came around, you know, I, I, I learned, I studied, I got to know the man and I changed my mind. That was his explanation. Well, you know, I say this in a different part of the book, Warren, but I think it's applicable here as well. You know, the Trump conversion experience is not to be taken lightly. And it's really not to be taken lightly when it touches people who find their identity in notions of uh, spiritual transformation. And there are a lot of evangelicals, people I know really well, who thought that Trump was a charlatan, that he was a liar, that he was deeply immoral. Um, and this sort of awakening that they've gone through, where they've come to see him as God's instrument, where they've come to see him as their champion, as someone who's sort of uniquely enlightened to see the evils of the left and to kind of wage war on behalf of Christian America. Like, th this is serious stuff here. And, 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 and people who have undergone that sort of transformation, um, I don't know that we have begun to grapple with the implications of that transformation. Yeah. Uh, both within the church and, and sort of more broadly as a pluralistic society trying to hold this thing together. One of the things that uh, comes out, I, I wouldn't say you really focus on this in the book, but it struck, it struck me is that a lot of the folks that, um, that are prominent within evangelicalism and sort of this convergence of politics and evangelicalism um, have their roots in the prosperity gospel and the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. And I, I'm just wondering if there is something about, the, you know, that movement that um, is a and and you may have already just mentioned this that that you know that the revivalist tendencies of you know of many evangelicals make them vulnerable to you know bandwagons and revivalist um, movements. Um, but I'm just wondering if you could say more about that. And and I guess the other side of that coin is uh, to to what extent does sound doctrine, um, intentional spiritual formation, inoculate? Christians from uh, the kind of, um, you know, political illusion that much of evangelicalism has fallen under these days? Well, I'll take the second part first, and those are two big weighty questions. I'll try to be somewhat brief in my response. I think on the second score, the answer to or the antidote to bad theology is good theology. And good theology stresses sort of, you know, holding the Bible up to ourselves as a mirror, you know, saying, search me, oh God, you know, help me to knock and, and, and to, be, to be humble and to search and to be more like you. Um, and listen, I think core to that, what I just described, is a willingness to disciple and to be discipled. And I'm using those as verbs, of course. And, and that word 
gets thrown around a lot in the evangelical world, but how much discipling is there really? Um, you know, that's a big theme of the book that I explore with a lot of pastors, some of whom are really honest about their own hesitations to disciple their people hard, because if they do, then those people will just leave. They'll go find another church. They'll vote with their feet and go find a pastor who just reaffirms their worst impulses and plays to their base instincts politically and culturally and otherwise. But Jesus and the model that he laid out, I mean, you know, he loved his 12 disciples, but he was brutally hard on them at times, right? And, and he did not infantilize them. He did not sort of um, treat them with kid gloves. And my fear is that in so much of the church today, um, you know, the, the disproportionate amount of stuff we take in from the world, every hours and hours and hours every day of social media and talk radio and cable news and all this junk, right? And then our pastor gets us for maybe, what, 30 or 40 minutes from the pulpit on Sunday morning? Like, that is, you know, that is so far out of whack. And so what the pastor can be doing during those 30 or 40 minutes is really important. But then also, what are we doing for ourselves during the rest of the week? Are we allowing ourselves to be discipled? That's part of what I said in my dad's eulogy, where I said, listen, like, really rush Limbaugh in the car, like for hours a day, like if you're in the car, if you're driving between sales meetings, like put on one of my dad's old sermons, put on the Bible project, open your Bible app and just listen to the gospel of John for a couple of hours. Like, what are you doing here? Like, is, is, is this really, and, and I feel as though that piece of it is so obvious. It's so like somebody asked me in an interview the other day, like, well, what can be done about this? Like, what's the answer? And I said, well, the answer is like in the Bible, like get back to the book. And a lot of this is just going to resolve itself. Like it's, it's a pretty easy answer. So I think that that's part of it. To the first part of your question about the prosperity gospel and kind of why some of these folks tend to be particularly susceptible. You know, look, um, I interview at one point in the book, Cal Thomas, who had been Jerry Falwell Sr.'s lieutenant in, in running the moral majority. And now Cal is obviously not a Pentecostal, not a gospel prosperity type, but he was saying something really interesting to me about how even though he and others on the inside of the moral majority knew that what they were doing was kind of gross and unseemly, that they were raising so much money that they were able to sort of tell themselves, well, clearly God is blessing this project, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be raising all this money. And I do think that there's something to that idea in the prosperity gospel and in some of the charismatic spaces that, well, look, uh, you know, Donald Trump is a fabulously successful businessman. Right. And Donald Trump has has his name plastered all over these buildings around the world. Donald Trump has this reality show. Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And and, and clearly uh, he is a success. And we if we attach ourselves to that success, then we will be successful. And if we are successful, then we are blessed. In other words, some of this some of this is so easily and subconsciously, I suppose, reverse engineer that that uh, not only if we submit ourselves to God's will and follow him, will we be blessed? But in fact, if we are blessed, then if so facto, we we are we are in God's good graces. And so, you know, Paula White was hosting Donald Trump on her programming way before he ran for president. 
right? The, the, it wasn't like this was some political uh, uh, marriage in its early stages. Paula White was hosting Donald Trump on her religious programming simply because he was a billionaire, simply because he had skyscrapers bearing his name. And she was completely taken with that. And so were her audiences. And so uh, it's, it's, I don't want to paint with an obnoxiously broad brush, but I think when you get into some of these spaces, and I spend uh, time in the book with Stephen Strang, who's the publisher of Charisma Media, like, you know, he, people like Stephen Strang, who attach so much significance to earthly success and to earthly influence and, and, and earthly power, political, social, cultural power, it just feels as though they have completely missed the point, at least as far as what I read in the New Testament. It's just it's almost as though we're reading two different texts. Well, Tim, we've got to land this plane here in the next few minutes. Uh, so I'd like to ask you maybe a few quick questions in closing that will help us do that and, and sort of tie up this conversation. Um, since the book is, as I said at the beginning, more personal than, say, American Carnage, I feel the liberty to ask you a little about where you are personally right now. I mean, are you, um, would you, would you, you were raised in the evangelical milieu. I'm I'm assuming that your dad would certainly have called himself an evangelical. I'm going to speculate that maybe there was a time in your life that you would have called yourself an evangelical as well. Do you today? Do you consider yourself an evangelical today? You know, not really. Uh, I wouldn't fight it if someone put that label onto me, but I wouldn't really offer it up myself simply because I don't know what evangelical means anymore. I do know what it means to the outside world. But I mean, as far as being a believer, I'm not sure what it means. And, you know, there, like there was a point in the 2016 Republican primary where there was an exit poll taken of voters in South Carolina. And there were three quarters of all Republican voters self-identified as evangelical. And that was a moment for me where I just kind of looked around and said, OK, well, if everybody's an evangelical, then nobody's an evangelical. Right. What does it even mean? So I've gotten to a place in, in my faith journey here where I'm perfectly comfortable with just plain old follower of Jesus. And I don't think anything more is really required of us. If people want to stick to the evangelical label, fine. But I think you have to recognize some of the damage done in the process. You know, at the end of the day, there's a verb in there, like evangelize. If, 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 if we are called to evangelize, but the term evangelical is a barrier to entry for evangelizing to these people who need Jesus in their lives, then we should really think hard about whether we're using that identifier ourselves. Well, I respect and appreciate that perspective very much. I'll just say for my own part, I'm reluctant, unwilling at this point to give up on the Word. I think that the Word has an honorable history, and I would like to recover that history rather than abandon it. But I certainly understand when people say that um, that they no longer self-identify for the reasons that you've given. Uh, I also wanted, Tim, to return to, um, you know, Scott Wine and, his, and, and the church uh, uh, and and ask you what's going on there now. And um, is there anything that you see in either that church, which was, you know, what sort of kicked off this journey, and or uh, evangelicalism writ large or American culture writ large that gives you hope? Well, I'll say a couple of things. First and foremost, and this is not to be trite or cliche at all, but it's just the truth. Like, I have hope because the, the tomb is empty and because God is sovereign over all of this. And, 
you know, my dad used to always say, God doesn't bite his fingernails. And it's, it's just, it's the truth. Um, and so for all of this panic and despair and fear, it, you know, which I am not immune to at all. I mean, I have moments of great despair and panic myself over all of this, but I, you know, God has a plan and, and, and God is sovereign. So I take great heart in that. I, the other thing I take great hope in is the generational change here. I just can't emphasize it enough, but I've traveled all around the country. And when you spend time with younger believers, younger Christians, younger evangelicals, um, these are people who, you know, in theory, like on paper, they hold the exact same views as their parents, theologically, culturally, politically. And yet they want nothing to do with any of this stuff that has invaded the church. They, they just they're horrified by it. Um, and that has been one of the really surprising things to me, but also one of the most encouraging and refreshing things in my reporting, even at a place like Liberty University where I spend two chapters of the book really diving deep into sort of the corruption and the ugliness at Liberty. You spend time with the students there, forget about the institutional decay, but you spend time with the students there. These are conservative kids, you know, they, they, they vote Republican, they sort of check all the boxes, and yet they just, they are horrified by what they've seen in recent years, and they, are going to be the change agents inside of the church. I, I'm just, I'm totally sure of it. And so that gives me a great amount of hope. Um, as far as my own home church, I'll tell your listeners that they will have to read all the way to the end of the book to really find out what happened. But I'll just hint that there's a bit of a happy ending here. And it goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about discipling. I think Pastor Winans there who was really struggling and pushed to his wit's end and almost walked away from ministry, he figured out a way to really finally get through to his people and to find his voice and to begin discipling them in the way that they needed. And uh, he's been blessed because of it. So is the church. Yeah. Well, very good. Yeah, we won't spoil the ending then. All right. <laughs> well, listen, Tim yeah, Alberta. You, you can't give away the end of the book when you're trying to sell a book. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, Tim Alberta, thank you so much for being on the program today. Again, I found uh, the book um, very uh, helpful and nourishing. It didn't hurt that I knew people on just about every, I mean, you know, everybody from Tim Eric Metaxas to Russell Moore, David French, Chad uh, Connolly. Those are all people that I know or have interviewed in my career as a journalist. So it was. Uh, um, in, in some ways that made it more interesting for me, but in other ways, it, in, in my view, and I'll just say this to our listeners, it enhanced the credibility for me of your book, because I knew these people. And if you were not telling the truth about these people, I would have known it. I mean, I, and, and I can, I can just testify and affirm that this is a fair and accurate representation of people on all sides of, um, what we see in, in evangelicalism today. And for that, Tim, I think it's a pretty significant an achievement, and I appreciate it very much. So thank you for being on the program today. That's really, really kind of you. I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you having me on. And uh, an early Merry Christmas to you and to all of your listeners out there. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Ministry Watch podcast, my interview with Tim Alberta, the author of a new book called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. The book is already on a lot of bestseller lists. Certainly, it's way up near the top of Amazon's list. I haven't seen this week's New York Times bestseller list, but his last book, American Carnage, made that list, and I expect that this one will too. So go check it out if you get a chance. I'd like to thank Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh for producing today's program, and also Christina Darnell, Kim Roberts, Casey Suddeth, and Stephen DeBerry for providing editorial, technical, and database support for Ministry Watch. It's fairly near the year end. Uh, I'm, uh, produ- I'm recording this on December the 12th. And uh, a lot of Christian ministries, including Ministry Watch, uh, need to raise a lot of money during the month of December. I hope you'll uh, prayerfully consider Ministry Watch as you uh, contemplate your year in giving. And whether you give to us or not, I hope you will use the Ministry Watch database to help you make wise stewardship decisions between now and the end of the year, but also throughout the year. Hope you find it be a good resource for you. Well, I'm Warren Smith, President of Ministry Watch, and your host on today's program. Until next time, may God bless you.